today. So this is a very, I don't know. So, so when you're speaking, <clears throat> when you're preaching, public speaking, you want that good hook at the beginning to get people's attention. I had one homiletics uh, teacher, pastor, that told us, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. That's how you preach, okay? Kind of going to do that here in this opening, but <clears throat> I want to ask you a question, and this is a, this is a shame, blame-free zone, just so you know, okay? Anybody in here, and you don't have to raise your hands, I'm not looking for participation here, just want you to ask yourself, anybody in here using the Dave Ramsey baby steps? And you're like, oh, golly, stay with me, okay? <clears throat> it's actually an awfully good way uh, to work your way toward what, what they call it, the Dave Ramsey group, financial freedom, and I do endorse it. Uh, we're doing it as my family, kind of, mostly. And the first baby step is to get $1,000 in the bank as an emergency fund, and that's so you don't have to go out and use a credit card because he tells you to cut up all your credit cards and be done with credit cards. <clears throat> but you don't have to go out and use a credit card and go in debt if your water heater goes out or you smoke a transmission or something like that. You dip into your emergency fund. Well, it took us a while. I've never in my life previously saved money. Never in my life. Because I'm stupid, okay? Remember, remember last week we talked about the difference between ignorant and stupid. I'm stupid. And I know that you should save money, and I wasn't doing it. And so when we started in on this, I'm like, okay, let's do this. It took us a while to get up to $1,000, but, but we got there. You know, somewhere in my 40s, we got there. Um, <clears throat> well... That's fine and dandy. That's great. Yay. Okay. But here's the deal. Anybody got a savings account? What the heck? What the heck is up with savings accounts? They are basically worthless. The bank is holding your money and making money off of you, and they give you basically what equates to less than 1% interest on the money that they're holding. And then here's what got me. Here's, and you see, I'm getting fired up, okay? <laughs> Here's what really chapped my hide. They started taking money out of my account because of inactivity. So everybody's like, uh-huh, talk, to preach. And I'm like, what the heck? So my 1% return, or less than 1%, actually turned negative. So my $1,000 turned into $991.83. And I'm like, what? They dipped into my emergency fund. Because I wasn't putting more money in or taking money out. Inactivity is what they called it. Hmm. So I took my money out of that bank and I put it in a different bank. Also stupid, okay? <laughs> They're all the same. They're all the same. And again, they, they charged a fee. And this wasn't even an inactivity fee. I, I, I didn't even know what this fee was. And this was like $12 or something. I'm like, what the heck? I'm never going to make that an in interest if I keep this in here till I die. So I took my money out of the savings account. Yeah, you'll hold it for me? Well, it'd be, probably be safer. We're going to talk about that. And so this is what I decided to do. And this is fresh. This is just a couple weeks ago. I'll take my $1,000 and I'll play the stock market. Oh, yeah, right? I had a flash. Surely I can do better than negative $12 a year. Maybe. So I did some research, i.e., I read a couple of articles on the internet about how to invest, and doggone it, I took my $1,000 
and I invested it in different stocks. And let me tell you what, in a couple days, I had made $30. I said, ha, ha, ha. I can do this, right? Well, then the market, I don't know if you watched the market. I have never watched the market. That sounds very important, saying that I watched the market. I'm just watching my $1,000 saying, what's going on here? Come on, Pinterest, I got one share. You know, go up $3, I'd be tickled to death. Well, the market went through what they call a correction recently. That's fancy talk for losing money after it gained a bunch of money. Well, guess when I entered the market? Right before the correction. So now my $1,000 is at about $992. That's not funny. I don't know what you're laughing at. I was so smart, right? Maybe I'm wiser just to put it in the bank, but I'm not. I've got a long-term investment plan. See there? Aha! I've got some stocks that are looking to grow over a period of a year or two. Then I'll sell them and I'll make money. I'm, I will make money. I will make money on them. That's what I keep telling myself. So I'll take my $992 and watch it fluctuate in the market. Say la vie, right? Maybe that bank wasn't such a bad idea if I put a dollar in a week or something. But evaluation is ongoing. I'll let you know how I'm doing in the market. Not that you care. Well, today we're going to look at a well-known parable of Jesus focusing on, hopefully you guessed it by now, investing. And we've kind of talked about it through the music and the prayers this morning. And this parable is a pretty doggone good one. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. So if you would please stand as we read this masterful story that Jesus told. And it is a good one. I'm excited. The Word of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But... His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, we trust in the power of your spirit to teach us, to instruct us, to convict us, to edify us through your word. We believe that your word is powerful and that your word will not return back to you without having accomplished what you sent it out to do. So we trust your goodness, your power, your word, and your spirit, and we give you praise for those things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, to be honest with you, I really believe, and this is not talking down to you in any kind of patronizing way, I really believe anybody in this building could stand up here, read this parable, and tell us what it means. This is not complicated. This is pretty straightforward. Um, So there won't be a lot of fresh new ideas, but as is so often the case, old truth is the best truth. So let's start with verse 14. Four, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, remember where we've been and where we are in this discourse of Jesus, which started back in chapter 24. It's the last week of Jesus' life, probably Wednesday of that week, and he and the disciples are leaving the temple for the last time. And on the way out of town, the disciples had pointed out the buildings on the temple mount And Jesus had told them that there would not be one stone left upon another of those buildings. To which the disciples said, huh, tell us more about that. And they want to know, they ask him the question, when would this happen and what would be the signs of Jesus' coming to establish his kingdom and of the end of the age? And again, whether that's one question, two questions, three questions, we've talked a lot about. And Jesus spent all of Matthew 24... All of it, answering and illustrating the answers to that or to those questions. And starting in 2432, Jesus started giving charges to be ready for his return, no matter when it might be. His answer to when he was coming back was a clear, no one knows the day nor the hour, so watch and be ready. And that's where we stand eschatologically as a church. Um, He then told the parable of the two servants, one faithful and one wicked. And then last week we heard the parable of the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. And those parables were to show the importance of being ready for the master's return, whether it's sooner or later. Now today, there's a shift in the purpose of the parables. Okay, It seems to me that there's a shift in what Jesus is focusing on here. We move from being ready and being ready for his return... And what it looks like in the judgment that follows that return, and it's a call to be fruitful. Okay, we've moved from being ready to being fruitful, and really they're the same thing. Okay, and I I think to frame it a little better, we're moving from vigilance, watching, looking, to diligence, which is doing. And I think what we see today and then what we'll see next week, Lord willing, uh, is what ready looks like in practice. So Jesus had ended the ten virgins parable with, and let me read that. This is the end of last week. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Okay, so that's how it ended last week. Four, having just seen five who were ready and five who weren't, and the result being that the five who weren't ready were told that the Lord did not know them, then we come to today. Four, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Okay, so I think this parable serves to show why the Lord in the previous parable said he did not know the five foolish virgins. For, he says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. The Lord of the previous parable says he doesn't know the virgins, so watch because you don't know the day or the hour. For, let me illustrate and explain this a bit, Jesus seems to be saying. For it will be like, what will be like what? He's about to say, the judgment on what people have done since he left will be like this. This whole parable today is about the master judging his servant's activity. Him judging their dealings after having left them and then coming back to them. For it will be like a man on a journey. That's pretty easy to decipher, right? Jesus is basically saying he's going away like a man going on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So when Jesus goes away, he entrusts his servants with his property. Jesus is going away, and all that is his, which is what? Everything. He entrusts all that is his to his servants. Now be careful with this servants thing, because we think, does that just mean people who are saved? And what we'll see today is, I don't think so. Even the unsaved are servants of the Lord. Okay, They belong to him. They're also under the power of the enemy to serve his will as well. So we're going to see both the saved and the unsaved today, I believe. And hopefully that, um, that maps itself out and, and we, we all agree on that. Okay, So he's going away and everything that is his, which is everything, he entrusts to his servants. And they are to be purposeful to do what? Well, that will unfold. Look at verse 15 where we zero in. On three specific servants. Oh, I went too far. I should be on 15. There we go. Sorry. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. And to another, one. To each, according to his ability. Then he went away. So we have three guys here. Okay? One gets five talents entrusted to him, one gets two, and one gets one. Now quickly, talents here refers to a measurement of weight. And it was used to measure the weight of precious metals, uh, gold, silver, copper. And depending on what metal it was would determine how valuable those five, two, and one talents were. Obviously gold being the most expensive, five talents of gold is worth more than five talents of silver, on and on and on. So we don't know exactly how much this is worth, because we're not told what kind of metal it is. But while we don't get the specific metal, therefore the specific amount, we get the point that five is more than two, and two is more than one, right? Right? We on board there? And why these numbers for these servants? They got what they got, listen, based on their abilities. Now note that. Jesus is saying plainly that these servants had varying degrees of ability. And they got what they got based on those abilities. 
Now, obviously, the guy who got five talents was able to handle more than the two guy. And the two guy had more ability than the one guy. Not the one guy, the guy who had one. That's a better way to say it. And, and please note, the talents, talents in this parable does not refer to their natural skills. If you hear a message saying, Jesus is telling you that you need to use your talents to serve him, that's not good biblical exposition. Okay, That's not what this is about. And while it does mention their abilities, these talents are not their talents. It's not their abilities. It's a measurement of weight. Obviously, I've been entrusted with much talent. Okay? Okay? Jesus does refer to their abilities, but the point of this parable is not use your talents for Jesus. He recognizes their ability and entrusts his wealth to them accordingly. But he entrusts each of them with the same thing, just different amounts of it. And that word entrusted, which was actually back in verse 14, when he entrusted these talents to them, it means that he gave it into their hands, to give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power or use, to deliver to one something to keep, use, master, or manage, to take care of something. These men are given these varying weights of the wealth of their master. It is the master's wealth. And he's entrusting it to them, giving it to them to use for whose advantage? For the master's advantage. This is not a gift. Okay? This is not, hey, I'm going away. Here, take my stuff. I'll be back. Use this however you want to. No, 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 no. It's imperative that we understand the master is entrusting these talents to be used for his good. And he's expecting them to manage his things well. To manage his things in a way or in a better way than he would manage them himself. And that's important. And so, what do they do with what they've been given from the hand of the master to use or to manage what is entrusted to them? We're going to read verses 16 through 18. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Hmm. Okay, so the scene is set. So the fellow who had gotten the five talents from his master, it says he went out at once. Some versions, the word is immediately. He went out, gets the five talents. I don't know what that looks like, how much it is, wheelbarrow, bag, I don't know. Okay, and it says he went out immediately. And what did he do with them? He traded with them, like me in the stock market, right? (laughs) No, because he traded with them. And what was his return? It says he made five talents more. Now, anybody in here would not be glad for a 100% return on your investment. What if the bank took your $1,000 and said, Hey, here's $1,000. We're going to give you 1000 more. Here's $2,000. You'd be like, I love this bank. This bank is my bank. This bank is your bank. Right? <laughs> I'm like, guys, this bank is good. Come. 100% return. Yeah, boy. Right? Anybody would take that. Again, now remember, this is the master's talents, not his. And he's been called to manage it, to take care of it. Well, I'd say he took pretty good care of it. He managed it pretty well, wouldn't you? Indeed. And then the guy who had gotten the two talents, 
entrusted to him does the same as the five guy. He gets a 100% return as well. It says, so he who had the two talents made two talents more. And I can't help but think that the master is going to be happy about the two as well, right? He got two more, trusted with two, he gets two more. So we've got two guys who get a 100% return on the investment that their master made in them. And then verse 18. But. Uh-oh. Dun, dun, dun. But he who had received the one talent, he went and did what? He dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He put it in a coffee can, right? Anybody ever bury any money in a coffee can? You're not going to tell me if you did because you know I'd come dig it up, right? And this was actually common practice in that day. If you wanted to keep something safe, especially money, people would bury their money for safekeeping. And this guy just wants to keep his master's money safe. Hmm. He doesn't want to lose it. And we'll see more about that in a few minutes. So three guys, two grow the investment that their master had made with them, and one just keeps his master's money safe. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. All right. So Jesus jumps to when the master comes back. And remember, he's in a narrative that is focusing on his return and how the disciples are to carry themselves and handle Jesus's, the master's, things until he does return. So after a long time, and note that, the master's journey took a long time. He obviously planned on being gone a long time or he wouldn't have entrusted his stuff to his servants to manage. It wasn't overnight. It was a long time. How long was it, Jason? I don't know. It was a long time. Let's not major and minor things. How long was it? I don't know. Long time. That's all I know. And when he comes back after that long time, he sets out to do what? It says he came and, quote, settled accounts with the servants. Now that phrase, settled accounts, is pretty interesting. The word settle means to make a reckoning with. And reckoning is an accounting term. Think about reconciling your checkbook, right? Your checkbook says you've got $847, but the bank statement says $12.67. It's very important that you reconcile that. Somebody's wrong. Let me tell you what, it's usually not the bank, just so you know. You just got to figure out where that 800 bucks went, okay? So that's the word reckoning, reconciling your bank your checkbook. Your checkbook says one thing, but you have to make sure it matches up to what the bank says or you're going to be writing bad checks and you go to jail for such things. And that ties into the word account. Now, this was surprising. This is neat. The Greek word for account is the word logos. Now, we've seen that word several times, right? It's translated as word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Logos. The logos was with God. So here, account is logos. Think about that. Logos. Why would, why would the word logos, translated word, be translated here as account? Because it's indifferent to what you think or feel. The account is the word. The account is what is true. Okay? Does what you say match what the bank says? Does your word match the bank's word? 
Here, the master wants to see how the servants carried out his word, how they managed what he gave them and told them to manage. It's reckoning time, and they're going to be reckoned according to the word. Did you do what I said? And did you do it well according to what I say now? And who gets to make that call? The master. The master's word is the final word on this account. That's very important. So, how did it go? Well, verse 20 gives us our first reckoning. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. All right. So, again, this is pretty straightforward. Five guy comes first. Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. He's reporting what he did with the master's goods, how he managed them. Notice that he doesn't say, I feel like I did pretty good. Notice that he doesn't say, in my opinion, I think I handled your stuff pretty well. He states the facts. You gave me five, here are five more. And recognizing that they belong to the master and not to him because he could have skimmed a little off the top, right? Taken a talent or two for himself and said, hey, here's three more talents. I took your five and got you three more. But he doesn't do that. People die for stuff like that. Read the book of Acts. You're like, what are you talking about? Ananias and Sapphira, if you don't know the story, okay? He's reporting what he did with the master's five talents. And he's giving objective, here's what you gave me, here's what I'm giving you. Master's response, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. The master replies first, Well done, good and faithful servant. And this is a two-way compliment, okay? He's complimenting both the deeds and the character of the servant. You have done well. You are good and faithful. Now, which is the cause? Seems to me that it's reciprocal. Okay? If one is true, both are true. You could say that since he did well, he's good and faithful. Or you could say he's good and faithful, so he did well. And with both being evident, the master says both. You did well and you're good and faithful. And the reward? You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now regardless of how much the five original talents were, it was a little bit to the master. Five talents? That's just a little bit to the master because he owns everything, right? So he says that the guy's been faithful over a little, even though he got the most out of all of them. Still just a little bit. Still just a tiny fragment of what the master owns. So just a little to the master. And since the servant was faithful with that little, the master sets him over much. The servant gets put in charge of much more of the master's goods. We saw this in a similar way at the end of chapter 24 when the returning master set the servant who had been faithful to give his fellow servants their food at the proper time. Do you remember what he got? Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Okay? It's an exponential return. Keep that in mind. Faithful with a little, set over much. That's a kingdom principle. 
And we see it here, and we need to take that in. If I'm faithful with a little, I'll be entrusted with much. So that way we don't despise our little. That's important. Do not despise the day of small things, the Old Testament prophet said. Kingdom principle, faithful over little, you'll be entrusted with much. And then this. Enter into the joy of your master, back in verse 21. Now, let's let's look at that for a second. Because that's significant, I think. What does that mean? Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I think it can mean a couple of different things. It seems that the immediate context is that the servant was welcome to come in and enjoy what the master enjoys. One commentator, Craig Keener, says it, quote, probably connotes banqueting with the master. I can buy that. Makes sense. But I think it can also mean enjoy being enjoyed by your master. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into a place where you know that your master enjoys you. Mm. Man, wouldn't that be nice? We'll get there too. I think it can be both. Enter into my joy, come and be with me, enjoy what I enjoy, but also enjoy the fact that I enjoy you. Because for sure, this guy got a real good attaboy, right? He got a real good pat on the back, and that's pretty enjoyable. Isn't it nice when people compliment you, thank you for what you did well? It's good to be recognized. Enter into that joy. Enjoy the pleasure your master has in you and your service. And I think we can be called into both as well. Enjoy what God enjoys and enjoy being enjoyed by God, just like this faithful servant. But he's not the only one, verses 22 and 23. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I didn't reread the other verses. This is the same thing, just with two Talents instead of five. It looks very familiar. Outside the number of talents, we see the exact same thing as what happened with the five guy. Two guy had made two more talents to go along with the two entrusted to him. And here's exactly the same thing said to the guy who had been given five and gained five. Exactly the same. But he only made two talents. But he was only entrusted with two talents. So it is 100% return. Exactly the same return percentage-wise and exactly the same commendation and the same reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So this master is consistent, right? Seems to be a fair man, wouldn't you say? Keep that in mind. He knew his servants and their abilities and entrusted to them what they could handle well. And so far, he was dead on. But there's one guy left, right? One guy who we're calling one guy. And we're about to see his reckoning. Verses 24 and 25. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. Well, it's just a whole different tone, isn't it? 
And it's not just the hand movements. It's just a whole different tone. So in the process of reckoning, reconciling the accounts of these three guys, the master comes to old one guy. Now from what we've seen, the master must have had a reason to think that this guy's abilities justified him only getting one talent. Now again, how much that talent is worth, we really don't know, but one in light of two and one in light of five says something. So he comes forward and he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. Again, quite a bit to unpack here. First, look at what one boy says about his master. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Hmm. The other two guys gave no impression of that, right? But this guy has his perspective. And the word for hard is scleros. S-K-L-E-R-O-S is the transliteration. And listen to what that means. I know you to be a hard man. It means hard, harsh, rough, stiff, stern, violent, offensive, and intolerable. That's what the word hard means. Wow. This is how this slave sees his master. And what's his explanation of this view? He says that the master is one who reaps where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now what's up with that? This is implying that the master is a thief, a trespasser, taking things that aren't his, reaping other people's crops, gathering the fruit from seeds that others had sown. Now is that true? If this master is Jesus... What does he own? Everything. But this slave doesn't see it as such. He's a hard man. He's a thief. He's a trespasser. He steals stuff from people. Who does he think he is? That's the tone. I know you to be a hard man. Reaping other people's crops. Gathering the fruit from seeds others had sown. It would seem that it's a perception that's unique to the guy with one talent. The other two do not see this in their master, nor do they mention it. If that's the case here, what we have is a guy who's a blamer. He's shifting blame for his plight to the master. It's your fault. You're hateful. You're mean. You're hard. I know you to be a hard man, so that caused me to do what I did. Man, do you hear the tone of the culture and the society in that? It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault. What they did made me do what I did. Where I was born made me be like I am. Mm. I know you to be a hard man, so that caused me to do what I did. And what did he do? He says, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So like we saw before, he buried the one talent for safekeeping so the master can have it back. Now again, he did that as soon as he got it. He made a decision instantly. I know this master of mine. 
and I'm afraid of him. And he's a hard man. So I'll just bury this thing, and whenever he comes back, I'll just give it back to him. He can have what's his. Now, do you think that's what the master had in mind when he entrusted it to him? No. Here, you have what's yours. Here, take it. You've got your stuff. Leave me alone. That, that's the vibe that I'm feeling here. Now, how does the master respond? But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Now, Greek has no punctuation marks. Okay, so this is an inferred question mark. I think we can read it as the master saying it like it's true. So you know me to be this guy? Or we could read it like, really? That's your opinion of me? That's the way I'm seeing this. You know me this way? This is who I am to you? The... So the master's upset with the outcome. We can see that pretty clearly. But it says his master answered him. Yeah, that but at the beginning here is an indicator of things not going well like they did for the other two guys. And the master calls this one fellow, you wicked and slothful servant. Wicked means of a bad nature. Slothful means sluggish and lazy. Now whose judgment of who matters more? Whose opinion of who matters here, period. The master's opinion of the slave is what's important here. And I think the master knows more than the slave knew. And I think the master knew truly what the servant thought he knew, but he knew falsely. And he judges the servant and says, You are wicked and slothful. Again, he only got one talent anyway. These are not compliments. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed. You knew that, huh? That's how you know me? That is how you know me? Verse 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. The master's like, dude, even the bank gives a measly 1% on a savings account. If you show activity and they don't take out fees. You could have at least done that. If I am so hard and bad and mean, you should have at least had the sense to get me a little more than I gave you. And actually the banks at that time, from the research that I've done, a normal return was like 6 to 12% from the banks then. Give me that too, right? Regardless, the bank gave a better return than the backyard. Or the mattress. And this guy should have at least done that. So if you did know me to be a hard man, if you did know that I reap where I didn't sow and take other people's fruit, if that's really who I am, you should have known that I wanted a return on my investment. And you should have done something more than just bury it in your backyard. So then what? So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. So take the one from the one guy and give the one to the five guy. Actually, he's the ten guy now, right? Five guy was faithful, so let him take care of the one. Take it from this wicked, lazy guy. Why? For, verse 29, to everyone who has will more be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, side commentary. We hear this as evil in our culture today. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Be careful because this, again, is a kingdom principle. And we need to know it and we need to understand it. We saw back in Matthew 13 when Jesus was telling the disciples why they get to know the meaning of the parables explained to them and the crowds do not. He said the exact same thing. Those in the kingdom get more above and beyond what they've got. Those who are outside the kingdom lose even what they have. This might explain why that wicked lazy slave saw his master in a harsh light. And this statement here in verse 29 seems harsh, doesn't it? And I guess it depends on which side of it you're on. And this master says that the wicked, lazy servant loses what was entrusted to him since he was unproductive with it. And why was he unproductive? Because he is wicked and lazy. Don't feel sorry for this guy. It's like what we saw with the faithful servants being called good and faithful for doing good and faithful things. This too is reciprocal. And here, wicked and lazy leads to losing, and the losing is because he was wicked and lazy. And in the kingdom of heaven, which is what Jesus is talking about, good and faithful gets more, wicked and lazy loses even what they have. And the kingdom here is shown in its fullness, with the redeemed getting their due, and the unsaved also getting their due. Remember the tares grew along with the wheat back in Matthew 13? But they were uprooted and burned during the harvest. The visible kingdom has both good and wicked, saved and unsaved. And all will be sorted out in the end. And everyone who has will be given more. And the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the way that the kingdom of heaven works. And that's important if we're going to operate faithfully in that kingdom now in light of the judgment that is coming on every man. Oh, and one more principle and our last verse for the day. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So need any more proof that this fellow was lost, unsaved, unredeemed? Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell, right? We've seen this a few times already in Matthew. When Jesus spoke of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, he's referring to hell. Here, those who are not doing his will end up spending eternity being judged All through Matthew, we've seen it for hypocrisy. Here we see it for laziness. We've seen it for unfaithfulness. And we've seen it for rebellion. Those people end up in hell. The master is coming back. And when he does, listen, he's coming back in judgment. The faithful will be rewarded and welcomed into the joy of their master. The wicked and lazy will face eternal damnation. 
That's the way the kingdom of heaven works. So the point of the parable then is to be doing what faithful people do. Take what the master has entrusted to you and use it to give him more. And then he will give you more. Don't take what is his and regard him as harsh and hard and tell him to take what's his on the final day because he will. And then it's going to be bad news for you. That's the point of the parable. So let's look at application then. Three B's, BBB. Busy, bury, balance. Busy, bury, and balance. First is busy. What does it look like to be ready? That's what we've talked about for the previous weeks. Ready looks like busy. And you're like, oh great, you're going to tell me what I should be doing now. Kind of. Watching and waiting is actually walking and working. As we watch and wait for the Lord's return, in order to be faithful, in order to be about what He's called us to be about, in order to move from vigilance to diligence, which is what we should be doing in our everyday lives, it means that as we walk through the world, and you're all walking through the world, every one of us is, as we walk through the world, we're working. And we're doing the Lord's work. What is that work? Take what the master gave you, make it more, and then receive more from the master. That's what being busy is all about. And we talked about this two Sundays ago, I think. I want to read two passages. And I want to tell you what walking and working looks like. One of them we read a couple weeks ago here in Ephesians 5, but I'm going to couple that with Colossians 3. This is what working looks like. This is what investing the master's stuff looks like. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now what that's saying is simply how we treat each other as the church is a huge part of our work. We take what God has given us and we employ ourselves to serve each other We speak to each other in psalms and spiritual songs. We give thanks for everything because we understand that everything we have has been given to us. And we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the big word. It's an awareness that I'm doing what I'm doing for the glory of God. And that sounds so elementary, but it's the main thing. Whether we're doing it here or... Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, there's that again, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That sounds familiar. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's what it means to walk and to work. As we are watching and waiting for His return, and He has entrusted to us everything, we turn everything into an opportunity to serve Him, to thank Him, to serve one another, to bless Him. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price, a very great price. What kind of investment has God made in your life? And are you busy? You're like, well, you, you, we shouldn't just be busy. Oh, we should be busy. Busy loving one another, serving one another. Giving thanks to God in all things. Doing all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's an awareness that everything is His. And I want to turn it back into something that I invest into my life or in the life of others. That gives Him a return on the investment that He's made in me. I want to be busy about that. I want to be diligent about that. A constant awareness that I am doing this in the name of Jesus for the glory of God, for the good of my brothers and sisters. And ultimately that's for my own good as well. That's 101 Christianity right there. That's important. Busy. The second application point is bury. Now what are we talking about here? I almost did blame. I almost did bum. Okay? We're talking about this guy that hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. This guy takes this talent, the one talent that the master entrusted to him, and listen what he does. He makes a judgment on the master. And that judgment on the character of the master, which was faulty, by the way, moves him to what? Fear, he says. I was afraid of you. I was afraid you wouldn't treat me fairly. So I thought, well, I'll just give you back what's yours. So I went and buried it. I buried it. This bum buried what was entrusted to him and blamed the one who gave it to him. You made me this way. And again, I don't know how much that one talent was worth. But it was an investment that the master made in the servant. And the servant said, you're not worth me working for you. You're not worth me being busy about your business. I'm going to bury your stuff and go about my business. And then when you come back, you can just have what's yours. How do you think that's going to go on the last day? Well, we saw how it's going to go on the last day. 
It's going to go poorly. Whether or not this guy was really afraid of his master or not, I'm not so sure. I think he was just lazy and wicked because that's what the master said. So he buried it. Now let me ask you this. What are you burying? What have you taken that the master has given you and buried it? Hmm? What's God entrusted you with? A spouse? Some kids? A job? A church? A Bible? Listen, I'll tell you this. As members of the kingdom of God, we ain't the one guy. We have been entrusted with much. And what of that have we buried? Well, my job's not really a part of my ministry. The heck it ain't. Well, I'm busy at work, so I don't really have time for my kids. The heck you don't. Well, my wife understands. The heck she does. Well, God will God'll show me mercy in the end. Listen, if that's your attitude, something's wrong. And let me tell you what's wrong. You're wicked and lazy. It all matters. That's what we said in the first application point, right? You're like, doggone, man. What happened to grace? Thank God for grace. It's there. But here's the problem. I'm afraid that we give way to fear. And that leads us to blame God for things, for the way that things are. And so we bury things and we don't account for them. And we focus on one thing. You are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, disciples, followers of Jesus, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Take what the Father has given to you, invest it in other people so that they may see your good works and give a return of glory to your Father. Don't bury it. Don't bury your trial. Don't bury your struggles. Don't bury your sins. Bear them and help us to bear them with you. Share them with us. Share them with the world. But here's the thing. We're afraid. Aren't we? We're afraid of how you might judge me if I told you what I was really dealing with. We're afraid that I can't trust you. We're afraid that we can't trust God. So we become wicked and lazy. Look at this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Why am I reading that verse? Because here's the deal. If you're afraid of God and the punishment of God, you don't know the love of God. 
Listen to me, church. Listen to me, Christian. If you know the love of God, you fear no punishment from Him. You're like, yeah, but. Watch out for those buts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you afraid, Christian, of God punishing you? He's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Wicked, lazy people are afraid that God's mad at them. Wicked, fearful people are afraid that God's going to judge them. And they're right. Redeemed, save, stumbling, sinful servants of God. No fear of judgment. Listen to me, individual Christian. Listen to me, corporate church. If you are walking in being afraid of God, which is different than the fear of the Lord, if you're doing what you're doing, if your motivation is because you're scared that God is going to punish you, you need to understand the love of God better than you understand it. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And God is not going to punish His people. Christ delivered us from that punishment. So check your fears and take those fears to God. Take those fears to each other so that we can pray for one another. Singing psalms and spiritual songs and hymns so that we can encourage each other to know that there's no fear in life. No fear of death for the Christian. No fear of judgment for the Christian. But if you are here today and you don't know God, you should be afraid. Because He is going to come and He is going to punish you. Which leads us to our last point, which is balance. Every single one of us will have our accounts balanced. Every single one of us will have our accounts reconciled before the throne of God. Even the very limited privileged, even the ones with just one talent, are expected to produce and not waste their opportunity. And if they don't produce and they do waste their opportunity, they will be judged for that. That means they're not saved. Everybody will have their account balanced. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You're not going to give an account for your family. You're not going to give an account for your church. You're not going to give an account because somebody else did something else. You're going to give an account for your life, for yourself. So don't blame other people. Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest that he described previously here in Hebrews so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
I promise you, everyone sitting in this building, every human being from Adam to the last man who lives or dies, will give an account of himself to the Lord. That's frightening unless you know where to hide. And I hide myself in the cleft of the rock. I hide myself in the finished work of Christ. And if I'm hidden in Christ, I have no fear of judgment. My reconciling is going to be, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Not because of what I've done, but because of who he is, what he's done, and what he's done through me in my life. That's the return that he gets. I want to finish with a poem. C.T. Studd, missionary to China, India, and Africa. China, India, and Africa. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy and sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living in thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Two more verses. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father, you have made a great investment in our lives. May we be diligent to immediately go out And take what you have given us and multiply those blessings into praise and adoration and glory for you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him 
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless for the presence of his glory with great joy. Only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. If you want to hang out, do it outside. We'll love you better out there.